Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, longtime friend, Liz Fosling. Liz, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Liz, you have just published uh, a new book. Talk about the book and talk about how it came to be. Yeah, so the book is called No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. Um, And it's well-researched and also illustrated. And the thesis is that it is biologically impossible for us not to feel feelings. So this traditional notion that you should be able to check your feelings at the door when you enter the office is ridiculous. And given that we're going to have emotions at work, it's time we learn to deal with them. And the book came about, I co-authored it with my friend Molly, and we both had experiences early on in our careers where we were at jobs that were very stressful. We both didn't find the work kind of intrinsically meaningful. And, you know, there are ways to manage that, but we didn't know how to do that. We also, neither of us thought that it was something we could talk about with people. We felt like We were both the only people experiencing anxiety at work, questioning whether we should be there. And because we were suppressing all of those feelings, both of us actually had physical manifestations of that. I started to have really bad migraines. I was getting sick all the time. Molly had numbness in her face. So those experiences, I think, really made us both interested in better understanding how we could have mitigated those symptoms and and been more open about our feelings. But then also, you know, what was wrong with those jobs, like what was missing from that work we were doing. And so kind of we had those separate experiences. And when we met a few years after that, uh, it just seemed like a great topic for a book. And and what did you learn reflecting about maybe what wasn't in those environments or what you could have done differently? Is it, you know, like just is it TLDR, communicate more? (laughs) Kind of, yeah. It's not even necessarily communicate more. It's just like feel feelings. I think if you are constantly ignoring your feelings, suppressing them is not sustainable. So at some point, you need to just first communicate with yourself. Um, And it's also really important that when you're feeling something that you just acknowledge it. Uh, There's lots of research that shows that people who acknowledge their feelings, who understand what their gut is telling them, whether they follow that or not, they actually make better investment decisions. They make better decisions about their jobs. So there's a lot of information contained within any feelings, difficult or great feelings. And if you're not even acknowledging you have them, you're actually missing out on really important data points. So how does one feel a feeling? Because I don't think I felt a feeling in my adult. <laughs> yeah, I think you just, I don't know, Eric, that's so <laughs> I think you just got to first admit that you have feelings and then, you know, hopefully something within you will indicate that you're feeling something. It is interesting. You know, uh, I just read Why Buddhism is True, you know, a book by Robert Wright. And he talks about how your feelings are very powerful indicators of, you know, hey, we're hungry. Hey, we're tired. Hey, we're sad. But sometimes they can be like false. You know, sometimes they're just telling us to do whatever it takes to pass our genes on to the next generation. And that's not, not <laughs> a productive thing to be doing when I'm doing spreadsheets at, at work. So, and, and meditation is sort of the antidote to separating, hey, this is this feeling I will just let pass by and not have to act on it. 
one thing you have, I don't know if it's exactly related, but you read in your book about is being selectively vulnerable. So can you talk about what that means? Maybe is it like being vulnerable only when it makes you look good and not vulnerable when it doesn't, doesn't meant to be a joke, but yeah. when should one be selectively vulnerable? What does that mean? It's not, yeah, it's not quite that cynical. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, really quickly too, a big thing in the book that we do say is that your feelings aren't facts. So that's why it's important to kind of write down everything you're feeling so you can better figure out like which one of these should I listen to and which one of these is I'm just angry because I sat in traffic for two hours. And so that's something I need to put in a box and put away. So selective vulnerability, we define as it's really useful for leaders. Um, And I think I would define a leader as anybody who's setting an example for other people especially if you're managing people, your emotions and how you express them has an, have an outsized impact on the people around you. Uh, we interviewed Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor, and she told us a story about she came into the office one day and one of her reports said, I can tell what kind of day I'm going to have by your mood when you walk in the door. So if you just snap at someone early in the morning, that employee is going to just be anxious the whole day about why you snapped at them. So it's really important for leaders to regulate what they're feeling and manage their emotions. It's almost as important to manage your emotions as it is to manage other people. And so selective vulnerability is still having some level of emotional expression. You also don't want to be a robot. Let's say you're a startup founder and you have to lay people off. If after you lay people off, you just act like everything's fine and you don't address it, that's super weird. And as your employee, I'm just not going to trust you ever again because there's something missing there. Um, You're not having like a normal response. But if you start like weeping in front of me, I'm also not going to follow you because you completely undermined any trust I have in your ability to lead. So selective vulnerability is speaking to the emotion, but then always providing a path forward. So in the layoff example, if I'm a leader, I might say, hey, this has been really hard. It's hard on all of us, but I'm doing everything I can to make sure this doesn't happen again. And here's what I'm doing. Here's what I need for you. So there's a path forward. We're putting a lot of positive things in place. So what can I do about the fact that I'm jealous of my coworkers, that they're smarter than me, better than me, better looking than me? What can one do about envy? Yeah. So envy is actually a really useful emotion. It's, I think there's some stigma, especially in the workplace, well, in all parts of our lives, that if we're envious of someone, you should just repress it. Uh, It's bad to be jealous. And definitely not endorsing that, letting that turn into bitterness and affect how you're treating someone else. But envy also really reveals what we value. So if you're jealous of someone, don't perform all kinds of mental gymnastics to make that go away, but try and really figure out what is it that that person has that's making you really jealous. And so it can be a really good way to figure out if you're at a transition point in your career, what you want to do next. If you look at a bunch of different people, who makes you really jealous? And depending on what they're doing, that might be the job that you should aspire to have. Another topic you, you cover quite a bit is, is about feedback. And you have this hilarious drawing about feedback as, as cookies. Can you, can you share with listeners a little bit about that drawing? Yeah, so we, we kept coming across in our research this idea of the Oreo cookie feedback, which is a good thing, and then you deliver the critical feedback, and then you sandwich another good thing. People have really strong reactions to this. So the illustration is kind of building off of this uh, analogy to, and kind of poking fun at it, like there's cookie dough, which is just raw, unfiltered feedback. There's a controversial one is the oatmeal raisin, which is generally good feedback, but there's some really negative stuff in there. So it's for the non-raisin fans. Yeah. And so the illustration is kind of just taking that to the extreme. Sugar cookie is just really positive feedback that's ultimately unfulfilling because it's not, you know, you need critical feedback to improve. 
And, and do you recommend the Oreo uh, framework or, or which framework do you, do you recommend? What's your feedback philosophy generally? Yeah, I think probably Oreo can work for some people. I think more the stuff that I would recommend is the number one is just be specific. The worst feedback, critical feedback that you can give is really vague and especially to note how you're delivering feedback to different people. So a lot of research shows that women are more likely to get vague feedback. So where a man might hear, hey, slide three of your presentation, repeated slide two, delete it. Super clear what you need to do. You need to delete slide three. Women often hear the presentation kind of missed the mark or your comments didn't land. And that's like, there's really, it's hard to figure out what that means. It's hard to do something based on that feedback. And so it's much easier for that recipient to just spiral into this like vortex of self of insecurity. So be specific. Two other things that are important. Second one is just make sure that the person knows that you believe they can get to where you want them to be. So if I say like delete slide three in the presentation, and then I really believe that you can make this presentation, that kind of helps the person not feel so bad about the critical feedback. And last point is just really understand how the person wants to receive feedback. Some people like it over email, some people like it in the moment. And so I think you know, there's the golden rule is treat others how you want to be treated. And I think it's actually better to operate in a world where you are treating others how they want to be treated. Yeah. This might relate to the original question about what types of environments you, know, you and Molly and other people thrive in and, and, and don't. But how, how do you talk about you know, feedback or just emotions in general in, in work in offices where it isn't natural to do that? Yeah. So I think giving feedback, I would just recommend you ask for it. So that's, I think, always good to do. And that like primes people to give you more feedback. Be really specific. I don't say like, do you have any feedback for me? Really easy for someone to be like, no, everything's great. So I would say like, you know, what are two things I could have done better in that presentation? So you're kind of trying to elicit it. And then, you know, don't, don't have a super strong negative reaction when someone gives you critical feedback. Like you want to make it awesome for them to give you feedback. And then just talking about emotions in general, yeah, we get a lot of questions from people who are like, I'm super on board. I just, I don't know how I can even start talking about this in my office. And so to them, I would say, I think there are just offices. Like if you work at an investment bank, you know, you're probably not going to be able to like sit in a ball pit and talk about, you know, how you're feeling in your childhoods. Maybe, maybe some really progressive ones, but I would there recommend Really, that you have to do a lot of like internal reflection, figure out what you're feeling, and then figure out the need behind the feeling and talk about the need. So if I'm really anxious, I could go to my team and be like, I'm super anxious. Or I could say, I'm anxious because I'm worried we're not going to meet the deadline. And then I can go to my team and say like, what processes do we have in place to make sure we meet the deadline? And I'm addressing my feelings. I'm kind of talking about my feelings without explicitly making it about emotion. What do you think is the best tactic to identifying the needs behind the feeling? I think just like listing has been really useful for me. So if I'm anxious, kind of listing out all the things that are making me anxious. And inevitably, some of those things are going to be things I can't control. It might just be like, I'm an anxious person and I'm having a weird day. So that there's not much I can do. But I'm often stressed because I have a lot of emails to send. So then just like, Send the emails, carve out the time to do that, um, make a to-do list, prioritize it. I think just listing all the potential reasons and then seeing which ones you can actually do something about. Yeah. How do you think about <laughs> this conflict in general? Like when you like just find yourself hating someone at, at work? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing is just 
you know, if you're finding yourself getting really heated, just take, take a step back. Like there's usually nothing that you really need to lean into and keep digging in about. I, I really hate the advice. Go to, don't go to bed angry, like go to bed angry. <laughs> Often you should just sleep and then you'll wake up and kind of be able to think about the situation more rationally. I think it's inevitable that there's going to be people that you don't like that you have to work with. So I think really trying to keep discussions about the work so that can alleviate a lot of conflict. I think conflict is really poisonous when it becomes personal. So if you send me a draft and I don't like the draft, instead of saying like, you always send me terrible drafts or like, ugh, Eric's drafts suck. Like I could just say like, here are some things that should be improved. So I think just really focusing it on the work and, and not, you know, just don't let yourself get mired in this in making it worse. Yeah. Before you wrote this book and, and became an expert, where did you find yourself or Molly getting into a rut the most? Like, where did you find yourself struggling the most in a way that oh, you sense? Everywhere, Eric. I still struggle. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, I think the biggest was just really beating myself up when I had a bad day. And I would catastrophize. I would be like, I'm anxious today or I'm feeling kind of sad today and I'm going to feel like this forever. And then I would just, I've, so many times I remember becoming anxious about my anxiety. Uh, whereas now I'm better able to understand that that's kind of part, you know, it's, it's mindfulness. Like it's part of living and th that feeling will pass. And there's, you know, there's, there's research coming out of Berkeley that shows that the people that are kind of best able to cope with sad or, or difficult feelings are the ones that just acknowledge it and then move on and are able to let it go as opposed to, you know, building this internal narrative of like, oh, I'm a depressed person. I'm an anxious this, like, this is who I am. This is how it's always going to be. So I think now I'm just more like, tonight, I need to eat some ice cream and just watch Curb Your Enthusiasm for six hours and I'll be fine tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. What advice do you have for people on negotiating? Uh, and not just advice on like negotiating itself, but it could be such a stressful time for people. Like how do they, it's such an anxious time. How do people sort of keep their cool around like intense negotiation? Yeah, I think the first is really come to an inner consensus. So have an, like a strong idea of what you want and be firm about that. Um, I think a lot of, at least for me in negotiations, suddenly when I'm in the moment, I back off a lot of the things and I think just having confidence. And then once you're in the negotiation, first of all, treating it as a conversation. But when I say come to an inner consensus, also just come to, you should have a realm of things that you want so that you can, if they're not willing to budge on salary, maybe you can work from home a day, or maybe you can have some more vacation time. And then when you're in the conversation, really start it off on a positive note. Research shows that negotiations usually end better for both parties if you're not coming in really aggressive and contentious. So even something simple like smiling as you enter the room can set a positive tone. If you can figure out a place where you're both happy, like the other par party isn't necessarily your adversary, they just might have different needs or wants. And if you can figure out how to make those match, that's great. But I think really treating it as a dialogue and not coming in seeing as like, I need to be this tough person and it's either this or that your chapter two of your book is called health and there's a, the sub, subtitle is be less passionate about your job why taking a chill pill makes you healthier uh, unpack that idea a little bit because i'm really passionate about my job and <laughs> <I'm> healthy <laughs> <laughs> eric not everyone not everyone can be at that level 
Yeah, it's so we're not saying don't be passionate about your job. It's more this idea that it's not it's impossible to just sustain. I mean, I think for most people to sustain working all the time. And so when you are a little less passionate about your job, you're just able to step away from work more easily. You're able to take the breaks you need. You don't experience work FOMO when you're supposed to be on vacation. You know, I think so many people, you send them an email and you get the out of office response and then you immediately get like an actual response. (laughs) That's not healthy. I think Cal Newport, he has a new book, Digital Minimalism Out. That's his big thing. It's just like you need to step away from things and like carve out space to recharge. And so caring a little less is not caring. It's not not caring. It's, it's amazing to be passionate about your job, but it's just a, a pitch for taking a step back and caring about your other needs a little more. Tell me about the person who you most admire in the workplace, who you worked with or have seen work, who embodies these principles, and you can't say me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to say Alan, who's one of the founders of Genius slash Rap Genius. And when I worked for him, I yeah had full confidence in his ability to lead, to fundraise, to be a good manager. Uh, but he also had, so I think he, he seemed like he could be tough when he needed to be, but then struck a good balance of in one-on-ones, really listened to what I had to say, uh, took my concerns really was was thoughtful about them. So it felt, he felt like someone I could turn to when I needed to talk to somebody about like the kind of craziness of just working at an early stage startup, but also who I, yeah, I just really trusted in his ability to lead. And I think that's a rare thing to, to find. Rap Genius was a community crowdsourced lyrics and annotations on the internet uh, that you worked at that we just mentioned a lot. But what else did you learn from working there? Yeah, I think that they, especially in the early days, did... A really great job of connecting with their users and understanding that the people that are using your product aren't just this like other, this like nebulous group of people. It's like there's potentially future employees within that. There are like amazing people that might believe in your product. And so really forming actual relationships with them. I think because of my time there, I still handwrite notes to people that follow me on Instagram. I will still send stickers. I will send tote bags and t-shirts. I think just if you are a fan or if you, if you like something to get something in return from that person or from that community, it's a really magical feeling. Like you really feel part of something as opposed to like looking in on something, you know, there's, this is common in the startup world, but like you just need like a small core group of like really passionate fans to, to grow something big. And I, I saw that at Rap Genius. I think a lot of people that were users like did end up working there. A lot of them still work there. So that's cool. Revenue is a very strong community, is a very strong community, created a culture of belonging. You, you talk a lot about in the book about belonging and why it's so important. Unpack that a little bit for the audience. Why, why is it so important and how can people and leaders create a culture of belonging? Yeah, so belonging, we define in the book as diversity is having a seat at the table, inclusion is having a voice at the table, and belonging is having that voice be heard. So belonging is when you feel that you are valued for everything that makes you unique. And this is important uh, because, you know, diversity has a meaningful impact on innovation when people feel a sense of belonging. So if you have a bunch of people in the room that all have like really interesting frameworks that grew up in different places that bring different skill sets, it's totally useless to have those people in the room if you're not creating an environment in which they can share all those things. Like if you're forcing them to all conform to some 
image of like what an employee should be, you're just missing out on all this valuable like data that's contained within each person. So ways to build belonging, it's actually just really small things. So Keith Yamashita, who founded the culture change firm called SY Partners, he created this term micro actions, which are the really small gestures and actions that we can take that make people feel a lot. So an example of that is just learn how to pronounce people's names and spell their names correctly. There was like an amazing tweet going around that was like, spell my name, spell my name. It's right there in the email. The spelling doesn't change. And I think like my name is Elizabeth with an S. So many people write back with a Z. It's not a huge deal, but there's like a little signal contained within that. And then there's a great story and then I'll stop because it's <laughs> going up. But there's a great story that we have in the book where there's an executive and he formed a team and brought in a new senior designer. And the team, he was really trying to be careful about cultivating a sense of belonging in all of the team members. And so he would look people in the eye when he addressed them. He would try and have equitable discussion. And after a few weeks, this new senior designer came up to him and she was like, you address every single person in the room by name and you've never said my name. And I think it's because you don't know how to pronounce it. And so my name is Karishma and I hope that you start saying my name. And he realized that he hadn't. And so imagine how it feels if someone's like, John, what do you think? Sally, that's a great idea. And then when they look at you, they're like, yes, you. <laughs> they're, you know, uh, and we've heard this too from, from Teach for America teachers where they just really focus on learning how to pronounce everyone's name because if you don't do that, you might actually start to exclude certain people. In one of the sections you have in the book, sort of subsection within a chapter, it's called Stop Feeling Bad About Feeling Bad. How can people do that? Yeah, so this goes back to what I was saying earlier where I used to get really mired in this. When I was feeling bad, I would just start thinking that I'm always going to feel bad. I'm a bad person. This is just like defining everything about me. Um, so the first thing to do is just notice when you're having these thoughts. So the psychologist, Martin Zelligman, he found the three Ps. And these are kind of dirty tricks that your brain plays on you. And a lot of people fall into these traps. So they're personalization, pervasiveness, and permanence. Personalization is thinking that the event is all your fault. Pervasiveness is thinking that the bad thing or the bad feeling is going to ruin every aspect of your life. And then permanence is what I described earlier, which is thinking that you're going to feel like this forever. So when you find yourself thinking about these, first just notice that, that these are common things, everyone thinks, and really try and understand that your thoughts are not a reality. Your feelings aren't facts. And then for each of those things, so personalization, instead of immediately thinking, I'm the reason this bad thing happened, um, really try and look at it more objectively. So consider the bad thing and the scope of all the bad things that could happen to you. And then also understand that you usually don't have like a hundred percent role in something that happened. Pervasiveness. This is again, thinking that the bad feeling or the bad event is going to ruin everything. Again, really try not to become consumed with anxiety. Tiny mistake is unlikely to start a chain reaction. One bad day, you know, it doesn't have to become like a bad month. And then finally permanence, this is if you're ever using the words always or never, I'm always going to feel like this. I'm never going to feel happy. It's a strong indication that your self-reflection has turned self-destructive. So instead of thinking like, I'll never feel good, think again, just like this was a bad day, but tomorrow's a new day. And here are some things I'm going to do to make sure you know, go to the gym, maybe just stay in tonight to kind of practice self-care and, and hope that tomorrow feels better. So having followed your work the past half decade, 
this book makes sense on a couple different angles. One is just from a humor perspective, you've been very interested in, in work humor for a very long time. And then also you've been trying to solve your own problems. How do you sort of explain like how this fits in and sort of the narrative and arc of your, your career and why you particularly found work humor so funny? I mean, I, I, and we've been talking about this for years. Yeah, I guess the arc is that I, oh, I just think people should treat it all a little more lightheartedly. You know, work is like, a, it's a crazy place. You're just put in an office building for hours a day with people that, you know, you, you might not interact with otherwise. And then there's fires to put out and there's like all this crazy jargon. And so I think just generally, like if you were an alien, work would just be like a super crazy thing. So I think there's a lot of like potential for humor within that. So that's one. But then two, I would say, again, like I worked as a consultant after graduation and just like, you know, honestly burnt out of that job. And I think some of it was that I wasn't practicing self-care. Some of it was that the the work wasn't like creative or I, I didn't feel it had like the kind of impact that I wanted to have. And so, yeah, I think the the big thrust through all the illustration, through all the humor is just trying to get people to treat themselves and their situations with a little more levity, but then also compassion. Um, I think it would have done a lot for me early in my career if someone had kind of just given me like permission to just like laugh at myself, to not take it all so seriously. And then also just to be like, you're going to have bad days. And like, you know, here's a cartoon about like, I had a bad day and and it's okay. And like, I, I think humor does a lot to also make us feel a deep sense of belonging or feel acknowledged in a way that's not so serious. I think especially emotion at work, it, it can feel really scary. I think a lot of people are still in situations where they think that like successful people don't fuss, they don't, they don't feel at all. So I think humor is an incredible way of allowing people to start having that conversation. You know, it's, it's kind of like, there's a lot of words that are like that I've picked up and I start saying them super ironically because I'm like, this word is so stupid. And then, you know, four days later, it's like the word I say all the time. And this is when I worked at Rap Genius, swag. We said swag about everything. And I thought it was so stupid when I joined. And then I was home with my parents and my mom was like, I'm going to make chicken for dinner. And I was like, swag. So stupid. <laughs> I think humor kind of can be that. I think if any of the illustrations in the book are someone's like, look at this, like, look at this funny thing. And they're saying this. I think it can actually be like a nice little entry point into a bigger discussion. Yeah. I want to close sort of broader idea sort of followed you in, in a bunch of different adventures you, you've had in your life. And it's the sort of, I think the way you'd boil it down is just send the email, unpack that and what that's meant for you and your opportunities in life. Yeah. So the advice that I, the one piece of advice I would give people besides feel feelings is just, if there's an email that could have a huge benefit to you and it takes you five, 30 minutes, whatever, just send it. And if you're, you don't think that you are qualified to send it, like just send it. The worst thing that will happen if it's like a kind human email is that it gets ignored. And that's really not that big of a deal. So early on in my career, I drew 14 ways an economist says I love you, which are economics charts as Valentine's. And one was like the marginal returns of spending time with you will never diminish or the S&P was in the red, but I wasn't blue because I shorted the market and went long on you. And then I was just, just come out of a really bad breakup and it was the day before Valentine's day. And I made these charts to make myself feel better. 
And then I just sent an email to Justin Wolfers at Freakonomics and to Tyler Cowan at Marginal Revolution. And I was like, whatever. This email took me like 10 minutes. Maybe they'll think it's cool. And then they both ended up posting them on Valentine's Day and the charts went viral. They were featured in The Economist. And it was all because of this like one email that I sent or two emails, I guess, in that case. And then I actually, I got my job at Rap Genius because I thought the product was super cool and then sent this like semi-crazy email to them about like, I think this could be used in all these different ways and here's how you could expand it. And then that led to me actually meeting them in person. I got the, the book agent through an email. I saw that someone was liking some of my tweets and she was a literary agent. So I sent her an email and was like, I want to write a children's book about a little girl named Catastrophe who solves problems with math. And she wrote back and was like, no, you can write the children's book later in your life. But like, what about a business book? So that got the ball rolling there. So I think I just had so many opportunities come from just like sending that one email. Yeah, totally. So with that, Liz, thank you so much for coming on the, on the podcast. The book is No Hard Feelings. It's fantastic. It has great cartoons. Liz, where can people learn more and what should they stay tuned for? Yeah, so... No Hard Feelings is sold Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere uh, books are sold. And then I think probably our website, Liz and Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E dot com. And then Liz and Molly on Twitter and Instagram. That's where we're putting all, putting all the good stuff. Thank you so much, Liz. Thanks. It's been a great episode. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.